we're suppressing our hunger cues. So again, we've lost, or maybe we are losing the ability to understand within our body what our hunger is actually telling us. Hey guys, good morning, good morning. So first thing first, today is episode 50, five zero. And I definitely teared up when I realized that yesterday because I didn't really plan for this podcast to be long term. I planned on doing it until I didn't want to anymore. And I thought that would happen a lot sooner than 50 episodes, sooner than a year even. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everyone who listens casually or every single week. Thank you to every guest who has said yes. This is beyond what I thought it could be and turned into something beyond what I imagined. So thank you. I am thrilled to still be having these conversations and sharing them. Um, and today is no different. So today is a return to my chat with Kennedy, who is a dietitian. It's a long one. You probably noticed when you click play, it's long. Um, so let's hop right in. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did because this conversation was so much fun and I had a great time. So here we go. Is there a difference between like an actual eating disorder and then the other term that we've been using for disordered eating? Is there a difference? Yeah, we actually probably should define that anyways. So let's go ahead and let's start there. Okay. So, um, the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. So theoretically we have a few different eating disorders that are, um, like an actual diagnosis. So we have anorexia nervosa, which is severe restriction. Typically, unfortunately, the diagnosis includes low, um, literally severely low weight in order to get that diagnosis. And that's something that we're working pretty hard to change in the realm of disordered eating. Um, but then there's bulimia, there is, um, orthorexia, but uh, however, I think that orthorexia is still defined as OSFED. So it's otherwise not specified, um, eating disorders. So things like orthorexia will be in there. Disordered eating may potentially be in there, but virtually disordered eating can be, um, it can, it's a little bit easier to define or to utilize in a sentence. So disordered eating habits could be things like skipping a meal or chewing gum when you feel hungry or taking a cold shower, you know, those little triggering pieces, um, that you may not be in a full blown eating disorder state. You may not intentionally be doing this, but you may have some disordered eating habits. Okay. Yeah. I think that was something that was, um, important that we didn't get to touch on when we chatted earlier. So I wanted to make sure that we did, um, with, anorexia you mentioned that um there's like actively the definition of that is like actively being changed um because Mm -hmm. before it said like it was someone who had like a low body weight and combined Mm -hmm. with um really restricted eating why Mm -hmm. would you want to change that definition so i mean theoretically your body is going to fight you very very hard kind of like how we had discussed prior it's going to you know, shut down reproductive processes and slow your metabolism down and bring your heart rate down and things like that before it actually really starts letting loose of excess body fat. Um, you may see some muscle wasting in those patients who are extreme, but you know, so when I struggled with my eating disorder, I didn't look 
you know, sickly ill, like these girls that you see, you know, girls and men that you see on, you know, the poster campaigns for anorexia. I wasn't, you know, my ribs, you can cut my ribs, my knee bones, you know, my patella wasn't severely, um, prominent and things like that. So this just gets us into the stigma of, well, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. You don't look like you're underweight. And that in itself is so triggering to these people who are suffering from their relationship with food. Okay. Yeah. I think that's something that's important from, or important that's missing from a lot of like discussions around eating, both eating mm-hmm. disorders and disordered eating. It's like, oh, well, you don't look like you have issues with eating and not everybody's right. body reacts the same way. Exactly. And, you know, I think that goes for men too. You know, men don't come forward often and talk about their relationship with food or if they have suffered from an eating disorder or disordered eating because men typically want to be masculine and strong and big and they're made fun of for being small or skinny or weak. So when we put that defining term on it of low body weight, we make it really hard for these men who have probably more I, maybe not necessarily more, but they have some pretty harsh, um, stigmas, man to man, I would say, as far as what their body looks like too. So why would they come forward? Um, you know, if they're at a normal, healthy body weight and share that they're going through anorexia, if this could potentially be something that let's say their buddies make fun of them for unintentionally are, you know, giving them shit. That actually brings up like one of my most favorite things to talk about um Mm -hmm. in i mean with anybody i so the difference between what female female friendships and relationships look like is very very different from what like male male friendships or female male friendships look like Mm -hmm. and i've had male friends tell me like yeah my guy friends are like they don't you know reach over and grab my hand like and this is like platonic male friends yeah my guy friends don't reach over and grab my hand if they're feeling scared or nervous or something like that they're like my girlfriends do where they hug me hello and goodbye every single time they see Mm -hmm. me they're like uh men don't a lot of the time get the same emotional support from same gender friendships that women do Mm -hmm. um and i think that i mean and this obviously applies to stuff that's not just about food and your relationship with food but um it for sure would affect a lot of men's like confidence in their ability to feel like they can come forward and talk about these things. Right. And, you know, the more we do and the more we discuss about this, you know, we've come a long way in eating disorders and disordered eating realm for women, but we still haven't come far enough a for anybody to feel comfortable coming forward and saying, I, I need help. I'm struggling with an eating disorder, but we've, we haven't made massive strides for these men who typically are hiding their disordered eating and eating disorders more than women almost. Yeah. And they also like, and on top of that, they're not getting like any emotional support for the issues that are maybe causing those that a lot of girls and women are able to find. Right. Exactly. And, you know, we have created this world where men have to be so masculine and strong and, you know, virtually emotionless. And that's not setting anybody up for success. One of the other things that we wanted to talk a little bit about when we talk about disordered eating is like (laughs) all the different, not maybe not all the different, but like that some of the different ways that people will restrict their eating and how uh, you like as a dietitian have seen some 
trends, whether that's like personally or through research or both, where um, in particular veganism has, Mm -hmm. it allows those who are already like prone to restricting or already actively restricting their diets Mm -hmm. to justify that restriction. Yeah. And, you know, like the first time that we talked about this too, we kind of went over how, you know, if, if, if you're somebody who is restricting your intake, you're going to look for as many excuses as you can realistically to hide what you're doing from your family, your friends, those around you, the people who really are watching what you're doing. So instead of saying, you know, I no, I can't go to dinner tonight. I don't feel like eating. You might say, no, I can't go to dinner tonight because I'm vegan. They don't have vegan options or different things like this. So vegetarianism gives us a little bit more leeway as far as things we can have, you know, we can still have yogurt and eggs and milk and dairy products and all that good stuff. Um, but veganism, we're restricting down to fruits, vegetables, uh, carbohydrates, and then, you know, soy based products. If you're a vegan, who's willing to consume soy. So now we've moved on to a raw vegan diet in some instances where these vegans are having things like they, they won't do tofu because it has to be cooked. So it's, you know, raw nuts and seeds. And I don't even know, it's, it's so severely restrictive that even as a dietitian, it's tough to be able to provide you with significant examples that would help you get to an adequate protein intake. So for me as a dietitian, I'm always really concerned about how much protein we're having because of course, protein is, you know, not necessarily our primary or preferred source of energy, like carbohydrates are, but they're what's going to help us build up muscle mass and have strong bones. So that when we get to, you know, 60, 70 years old, we have prevented osteoporosis as best as we can. And then on top of that, you know, if you are restricting your intake and your protein is severely restricted, well, that's when muscle protein wasting kind of starts to kick in. And uh, again, that's a, that's a, a symptom that's kind of farther down the road of your eating disorder, but it's still a possibility. So when we take away sources like animal proteins and dairy and eggs and all these beneficial sources, we make it really tough for ourselves to diligently pursue health, I would say. Um, but on top of that, you know, it helps us hide or gives us more excuses as to why we're restricting our intake. So there's no statistic that I can pull as far as how many vegans um, are suffering with disordered eating or eating disorders, but you'll hear many stories from people personally who will share them about how they've transitioned from a vegan diet back to a, you know, no restrictions diet. And that's what they were using to hide their disordered eating and eating disorders from their family. And, you know, like we said last time too, this isn't to say that people, that every vegan is suffering from an eating disorder, disordered eating. And as a dietitian, if you want to be a vegan, you want to be a vegetarian, you want to restrict your intake in some capacity, I will support you wholeheartedly. I need to understand your reason why I need you to give me good understandings, solid ground. I need a plan. And I need you, I need to feel like you have the competency and the understanding of nutrition to be able to put meals together to prevent severe deficiencies. So we know with a vegan diet, typically they're lacking things like B12, which comes from, um, animal protein. So that would be the vitamin cobalamin. Um, it's going to help with digestion and prevent digestive processing or, um, problems, there's things like vitamin D that is severely restricted. And, you know, that's again, going to be another potential trigger to osteoporosis as we age. 
the whole list of things goes on. It could be like iron, it could be calcium. Those things kind of oppose each other in the diet too. So, you know, if you're having a glass of milk with a salad, those two actually aren't going to be absorbed as efficiently as efficiently because they don't, um, they just, they oppose one another. One is stronger than the other. So we, you know, it's a basic science that most people don't have the knowledge or the understanding or the education because you didn't go to school for it. And nutrition is really hard, but it's those things that, you know, I have to challenge these people who want to restrict their intake to some capacity and ask them those tough questions. Like, why? Tell me why this weight sounds better to you. Tell me why that, that diet seems like it's easier or more healthy Then I need you to define healthy. I need you to define, define X, Y, Z for me, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. I think that it is important, like as a professional, like when you are talking about like diets that are restrictive is that it's focused on like the new, like the nutrition base rather than like Oh, mm-hmm. well, is your goal to lose weight or is your goal? Like if it is, if that is your goal, because I know that's a very common goal when people are changing their diets and um, adding additional exercise and stuff, but to know why they feel like that needs to be their goal, mm-hmm. because there's a difference between someone who's like, oh, well, I'm, I feel overweight and I'm having trouble keeping up with my toddler and someone who's like, oh, well, I just don't like the way I look. Exactly. Right. And then, you know, you have to ask those questions too. And sometimes people will be like, well, I saw that, uh, I don't know, Megan Fox. I saw that she's a vegan. I have no idea if she is or if she isn't, (laughs) but uh, you know, and then I'm like, well, do you think that she doesn't have a nutritionist or a dietitian or, um, you know, a personal trainer X, Y, Z at her fingertips, you know, it's so much easier for these celebrities or these people that we look up to influencers these days to, you know, have the money to afford these resources where maybe their dietitian is being a little more diligent with their diet and can tell them, you know, okay, if you choose to restrict animal proteins, we now have to be supplementing with a B12 supplement. And then on top of that, you know, supplementation is also very expensive too. And not everybody has the luxury of being able to afford that or the luxury of realistically high quality supplements at their fingertips either. So for those of us who are in, you know, rural America, we're paying shipping to get quality supplements out here. It's not like we can go to town and have, you know, X, Y, Z that's actually certified and clean and inspected. So if anybody is looking for, you know, supplements that are clean and not necessarily FDA tested or certified because the FDA, the food and drug administration does not inspect our supplements. You'll want to look for a supplementation with an NSF label on it. So the national sanitation foundation, and that's kind of who goes in there to inspect the product and make sure that nothing that isn't specified on the ingredient label is in there, make sure it's clean, make sure it's safe, so on and so forth. So, you know, there's just so many aspects that go into a restrictive diet. And like you said too, Harley, this certainly isn't to say you absolutely cannot be vegan. You can't be because if that's something that you're passionate about, something you believe in, something you enjoy, we want you to do that because food is so much more than just food. If we ate purely for nourishment, our entire life, we would have very boring experiences. Food is cultural. It's religious. It's something to celebrate. 
you know, we're going to an engagement dinner tonight with our brother and sister-in-law. So we're probably going to have something that, you know, we don't get to have at home often. So it's so much more than just something we put in our body to eat. So we can't live hopefully a hundred years eating food that we don't necessarily enjoy. Yeah. I know when the very first time when we touched on this, we talked about, um, food about food being cultural and like the, like quote unquote normal meals, like varying heavily by culture and that it's important to like, for you as a dietitian, also like be educated on that. So you can make sure you're being Mm -hmm. respectful or like keeping in mind that someone who is like, just came for example someone who just came from china or from japan would have had a vastly different diet and probably would have a vastly different relationship to food than your average person where you Mm -hmm. currently live exactly and there you know there's so many parameters to be respectful of too you know again religious cultural access um, genetics. So a lot of people typically, not typically, a lot of people may have a family history of let's say heart disease. So then they choose to reduce sodium in the diet. So they may avoid things like, I don't know, pork or processed foods, or you may see them eat, you know, many, many, many more vegetables. Well, a lot of people will question that and kind of say, Hey, you know, it seems like you're eating a lot of very healthy things. That's awesome. But can you tell me more about it? Tell me why is everything okay? And they might say, you know, I'm eating to prevent cardiovascular disease. I'm eating to decrease my risk for, um, heart disease because I have a family history of it, X, Y, Z. So there's just so much that goes into a person's food choices that you have to ask so many questions about. You have to be respectful and you truly have to understand the science behind it also. Yes. One Thing I want to go back to really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about specifically about your eating disorder and you talked about mm-hmm. um, some of the thing that like, things that like kind of helped you mentally through that. Um, you said that studying mm-hmm. nutrition was really an eye-opener for you and mm-hmm. um, that when you were like learning about some of the effects on the body, you were just like jaw on the floor, like, wow, I don't want to, th- mm-hmm. I don't want to do this to myself. So can you share kind of what some of those effects would be? Yeah. Um, so, you know, like you said, I, I'll re- kind of reshare my story on here, like a little breakdown quick, but um, virtually I, st- I struggled with an eating disorder for almost 10 years of my life. I ended up, you know, kind of um, ending my softball, my college softball career early because I didn't want to come to come to face what I was doing to myself. So for fun, I took a nutrition one-on-one course and I was hooked. There was nothing else for me. And I changed my major to dietetics. So as I got further into the program, you know, we took lifespan nutrition, we took maternal, um, and infant nutrition. We took biochemistry, nutritional biochem, all of these different things that put more and more and more science evidence-based information into our brains as dietitians. Well, if you're struggling with something, a diagnosis or, um, you know, an illness or a syndrome or whatever it may be that you get to study obscene amounts of hours for, you become really interested in how that specifically is affecting you. So as somebody who was struggling with an eating disorder, I was, you know, kind of made aware that, you know, my body is going to start slowing processes down. 
my heart rate might slow down. So if you've ever struggled with an eating disorder, disordered eating, you might know that you always feel cold, your hands, your feet, your entire body. You are always cold. This is because your heart rate is slowing down. Your circulative system is slowing down. It's accommodating for the lack of energy. So it's going to preserve as many body functions as it can. Um, on top of that, you know, your nails might become weaker. Your skin might dry out. You might see some of your hair falling out again. This is, you know, lack of those important vitamins and minerals that we get from our diet. So again, restricting increases our susceptibility to vitamin and mineral deficiencies that can cause or expedite symptoms that we're dealing with. Um, And then I think the biggest piece, you know, being a woman and being somebody who I went off to college and after my freshman year, I met Dylan, who is my now fiance. And, you know, when you meet your person, you're not thinking about today or tomorrow, you're thinking about 10 years from now. So the biggest thing that stuck with me was, you know, if you ever get into that phase of amenorrhea, so the loss of menstruation, your body is choosing to shut down your reproductive processes rather than other other, um, prioritized or important body functions that your body is requiring to stay alive. Like your heart beating, your lungs, breathing, your muscles, moving things like that. So, you know, we don't need reproduction to live necessarily, right. It's something that would be excellent. It's a, it's a great experience. If that's something that you can do in your life, but it's not something that your body physically needs to reproduce to live. So it's going to sacrifice some of those processes before it sacrifices function of your brain or your muscles or, you know, coordination, all of these different things like that. Is there like some long-term issues potentially with like pregnancy or anything like that while you're like in recovery or, um, I don't know if, I don't know if post-recovery is like the right terminology, but, um, once you're like back in a healthier mindset, it's so it's, it's tough to say because every body is different. So as a dietitian, I'm constantly talking about individualized nutrition. I want this to be specific to you and things like that. So, you know, everybody's recovery will look different. However, when you come out of a menorrhea, typically you're going to be reverse dieting with the oversight of a dietitian. Hopefully you have an entire interprofessional team working with you, a psychotherapist, a dietitian, perhaps a strength and conditioning coach or a physical therapist, you know, a whole cohort of teams that can help you better yourself, but you're going to reverse diet. So you're going to actually slowly, gradually increase your calories back to a normal or a safe, um, caloric range. After that, you might be able to implement some exercise. So people typically with eating disorders may or may not abuse exercise too. So you'll learn the benefits of, you know, mindful movement, like yoga or meditation, Pilates going for a basic walk and how that fits in with an appropriate caloric range. Um, once, you know, our menstruation returns and is consistent and is, um, regular, I guess is the term I'm looking for, then we can hopefully, you know, start managing some of these, um, symptoms that are associated with it. So again, that irregular period may be something you could have worse menstrual cramps, um, different things like that. Now, research typically is going to say that, um, some long-term effects of amenorrhea or a severely restrictive eating disorder in the mother of an infant may result in an increased risk for miscarriage, preterm labor, low birth, low birth weight, and different things like that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
the one other thing that I wanted to touch on before we move on from um, eating disorders is I think you mentioned like that it can also do severe damage to um, well you have mentioned during this episode that it can do severe damage to internal processes but I know one that you specifically brought up before was a, um, the response mm-hmm. in your GI area. Your GI symptom is so heavily connected with your brain. It's a really interesting relationship. So I played ball with a lot of girls who would get so nervous before the game that they'd have to go to the bathroom, you know, so nervousness, severe restriction, any kind of stress. So when we think about stress, your body cannot, it doesn't have eyes, right? Typically, or, you know, theoretically we do have eyes, but your gut, your gut (laughs) doesn't have eyeballs. So it can't determine if your body's feeling stressed from an injury. Maybe you got into an accident. Maybe your day is really hard. Maybe you had a really hard lift to your body. That stress is all perceived the same. So when we increase stress on the body, sometimes, and depending on how intense it is, where the stress is coming from, we can have GI distress. So nausea, vomiting, ulcers. So if you've ever been somebody who was incredibly, incredibly stressed out over a long period of time, stomach ulcers are something that we see. Um, and they can be very dangerous diarrhea, all sorts of different things like that. Gut health really can suffer. And if our gut health health is suffering, that also increases our susceptibility to deficiencies. So if we don't have a healthy gut, unfortunately, sometimes digestion and absorption is, um, interrupted as well. Yeah. I know like when my own body gets stressed out, like I get anxious about, um, like uh, in college, I would get really anxious mm-hmm. about like giving presentations. And I would just like, until I was up in front yep. of the class, I just wanted to throw up. It's crazy. The whole time. I was just like, I'm, I'm yeah, I knew I never would, but I was yes, like, oh, exactly. I and it's like your actual stomach, you know, between like your ribs, it's not like your stomach stomach, but it's just crazy. It's the body is truly incredible. And it's so much smarter than we know. Yeah. So the next thing I really wanted to talk about, um, is anemia and then how, meat can be helpful and then just kind of some of the benefits of meat yeah. in general. So, um, we typically see iron deficiency anemia as the most common for women. So, you know, menstruating women, we're losing iron in the blood. There's a relationship between iron and hemoglobin. So those two help us increase oxygen in the blood. Um, but basically if you're somebody who's struggling with iron deficiency anemia, you are going to be told to increase your iron rich foods. So yes, you can do it with vegetables. However, iron from animals typically is better absorbed, um, and better utilized by your body than iron that comes from vegetables and fruit, more so vegetables. Um, but the most dense, uh, iron product, I guess we could say is going to be beef liver. So as a dietitian, again, I really take a whole foods first approach. I want to, you know, kind of, if it fits your macros, there are no wrong foods. I'm going to teach you how to utilize anything that you genuinely love and teach you how to fit it into your eating schedule, eating habits. So that being said, I want to teach you to eat the things you love and avoid supplementation. So like we said, it, is expensive truly to supplement and we may or may not genuinely need it. So you could be risking the loss of your supplement all through urine or through your stool and different things like that. So my favorite supplement for iron 
is going to be a beef liver supplement. So a lot of people are really, really opposed to beef liver because you know, it's got an odd texture and it's kind of nasty, but you can get it in a supplemental form. Or if you're a beef producer or somebody who's lucky enough to know somebody who's a beef producer, you can ask for it from the butcher, your butcher, your processor can send it back to you and you can actually blend it up, put it into ice cube trays and freeze it in the freezer. You can add it to stews. You can add it to anything that's pureed soups, smoothies, all sorts of different things. So once we blend it up and we hide it and we start mixing that in there, that's something that's going to be super beneficial. We also see iron deficiency anemia during pregnancy because these babies that we're growing are sucking as much nutrients out of us as possible virtually. So, um, that's another awesome preventative measure. Basically, even if you're somebody who's not struggling with iron deficiency anemia or an iron deficiency period, that's another great preventative measure to take. Yeah. I know a lot of my friends, um, once they got pregnant, they had like issues with iron deficiency anemia because they're like, their doctors were just like, yeah, the baby's just, you know, sucking it right out of you. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, what are some of the other benefits of eating red meat? Yeah. Um, so red meat is, it's a powerhouse. Basically it's one of the most incredible resources that we have. Again, I truly think that all animal proteins are a great resource for us. And as a dietitian, once again, um, I think that in today's day and age, we're making eating really tough for us. It doesn't have to be this tough. We don't have to have all of these processed foods unless you truly love them again. Um, but we did without that. Our ancestors did without that before us. And, you know, eating has never been so hard. We've never thought about eating as much as we do now. So iron or iron deficiency anemia, um, (laughs) beef or red meat is a powerhouse for things like iron, for protein, for, um, you know, a couple of those other important vitamins and minerals, again, B12, cobalamin, um, the functions of cobalamin are just incredible. So when we skimp out on them in our diet, we have to have a B12 supplement. Um, so, you know, cobalamin or B12 or a B complex vitamin, they actually help to make red blood cells. They help to make our DNA. They give us energy. They help heal or produce tissues within our body. They keep our nervous system healthy. They keep our nerves functioning. Um, so if you've ever had somebody who struggles with like a, with nerve damage, or you, maybe you yourself struggle with nerve damage, you felt, or you have heard about, you know, kind of how, what these people are struggling with. So this B12, that's specifically from animal proteins, like red meat go in there and they heal some of these things, or they help get those tissues back up to speed a little bit faster. So, you know, the, the benefits of beef or red meat, I would say far outweigh the negatives. So again, you know, we have talked through history about, you know, saturated fat in meat. And again, I don't specialize in beef. I specialize in dairy, but, um, the benefits far, far outweigh the downsides of it. If you're getting your saturated fat from a great cut of beef, you're really in a good place. I love it. Um, what, what is kind of one thing that you wish was more common knowledge about nutrition? Cause it's, it's complicated. Um, it's hard if you don't have the educational background, it's hard, mm-hmm. even if you do have the educational background. So what's like, mm-hmm. what's something that you really wish everyone knew? So I think it's less of something I wish everybody knew. And I think it's more of something that I wish everybody still had. So, you know, when we're born, 
we cry because we're hungry. We stop eating when we fill up. Um, you know, we ask for the things that we want. And then as we get older, especially women, again, we're taught to eat like birds, eat less than men, you know, be ladylike, da, 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 make these good food choices. We should be so thin and skinny and beautiful. But we, by doing this, we're suppressing our hunger cues. So again, we've lost, or maybe we are losing the ability to understand within our body, what our hunger is actually telling us. So the best example I can give is women who are menstruating, craving chocolate. So when you menstruate, you're excreting magnesium out through menstrual losses and chocolate is an incredible, specifically dark chocolate is an incredible source of magnesium in the diet. So if we could truly go back to our roots of understanding what our hunger cues or our hunger cravings, our food cravings are telling us, we would be in my head in such a phenomenal place nutritionally in this world. I think that, you know, obesity would be lower. I think we would have some more active individuals. I think that our athletes would be even more incredible athletes because again, stopping eating when you're full and eating when your body's telling you you're hungry instead of shutting that down or drinking water or chewing gum or, you know, these, these unintentional disordered eating habits, all they're doing to us is suppressing these cues that make nutrition even more challenging. What are, in your opinion, some of the ways that people who have kind of ignored those cues for so long so that they've lost them? What are some of, Mm -hmm. um, the ways that they can work on listening to their body and eating when they're hungry. Yeah. My biggest recommendation always, and my clients have really, really great success with it is journaling. So you journal, you, let's say you wake up at seven, you're not hungry immediately. When you wake up, you're going to say, you know, woke up at seven, 10, wasn't super hungry. You have your first meal, write down what time it was, what you ate, and then let's decipher it. Let's break it down. Why did you choose the foods you eat? Are you choosing them because you were hungry? Are you choosing them because they were convenient because it's your favorite breakfast? Um, what did you crave? Was it, what did you actually act upon what you were craving? And then we're going to break down kind of your relationship with food. Did you avoid having eggs because you think they have a funny texture or because your great uncle said eggs cause cancer, you know, just goofy things like that. So if we can break down and write down kind of what our body is telling us, and then understand our relationship with food and food choices, eventually those hunger cues will come back. And it's really, really fun to see the success in these clients who work their way back towards it. When they finally say, Oh my gosh, it's 8am. I ate when I was hungry. I stopped when I was full. It was amazing. And they continue on. It's something that I think we have lost and we don't think about what it was like when we still had those, you know, that understanding of our hunger. So it's really interesting and it's such an awesome experience. That sounds awesome. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's really good advice. If someone is like wondering what their next step, I guess, um, is in trying to be healthier is trying to start listening to your body. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, okay. So you mentioned that you specialize in dairy. So let's talk mm-hmm. about milk. Let's talk about um, some of the health benefits and all that. Absolutely. You know, I think that some of my favorite things to discuss with dairy, specifically fluid milk, is the, all the controversy around consuming whole milk, especially in children. 
So I myself am not a mother. I don't have kids. So I, of course, will never, ever give any judgment as far as how you choose to feed your children. That's none of my business. Um, if you ask for help, I'll give you help, but I don't feed my own kids because I don't have any. So I'm, there's no room for me to judge, but I like to help moms make educated choices. So I have, a not, not a lot, but I would say I've encountered it pretty frequently where mothers are like, am I going to increase my child's susceptibility to obesity or to cardiovascular disease? We do have a genetic, um, predisposition to X, Y, Z. My pediatrician told me that my three-year-old should be on skim milk. You know, I'm seeing that more and more and more these days, but if you actually look at the research, um, I should have pulled it up for this podcast, but the research basically is bar none. Children who drank whole milk were far less likely to actually become obese. And it was really, really interesting to see the research and how it supports it. Um, let's see if I can get here quick. I actually found the post, thankfully. So I'm going to read a couple different, just little blurbs, um, virtually verbatim. So back in 2020, a four year or a little bit over four year longitudinal study was released and researchers found that children who are aged two to six were, I'm sorry, with obesity were less likely to have consumed whole milk and were more likely to have consumed skimmer 1% milk. So again, children who were already obese between the ages of two and six were less likely to have consumed whole milk and more likely to have consumed skimmer 1%. A second study released this year, 2020, was conducted by the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and it found that research suggested higher fat cow's milk consumption is associated with lower childhood adiposity. So this basically just means that children who drink whole milk had less body fat than those who didn't. And then the last one is a systematic review conducted by St. Michael's Hospital of Unity Health Toronto found children who drink whole milk had 40% lower odds of being overweight or obese compared to children who consumed reduced fat milk. And the cohort they analyzed was over 21,000 children. So again, you know, when you read research, you really have to look at who is the um, funder of the study, because of course they have some bias in there. But when we look at the research, it truly is really incredible as far as what milk can do for health. Um, There's more research that's published on the effects of drinking milk and cardiovascular disease. Um, You can find truly, honestly, any research study to support drinking milk, whether it's whole milk, skim, 1%, 2%, whatever you like. Um, It's going to help with, you know, natural probiotics to stimulate gut health and all these other beneficial products. So I, I have nothing negative to say about milk. I love it. I wish everybody could drink it. Um, but like our discussion last time too, Harley, you know, if you don't love the taste of milk, if you didn't grow up drinking milk, or let's say you prefer almond milk in your coffee (laughs) in the morning, (laughs) if that's something you love, have it again, food is so much more than just nourishment. It is so many different things. So if you enjoy what you're eating, continue to enjoy what you're eating, even if that means you're drinking oat milk or almond milk or whatever. Yes. We're going to circle back to milk and alternatives, but I actually am really curious about, um, the studies that you were talking about, because I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, um, where all the studies were. And then I'm curious about what the kids, um, who weren't obese. Cause you, the studies, I think you said it was specifically children who were obese. Um, the kids mm-hmm. who weren't obese, if they were more likely to have been drinking, 
milk or if it was just children that were obese had not been drinking whole milk. Yeah, these were all comparison studies. So the first one that was like the children were um, less likely to have drank whole milk and more likely to have drank skimmer 1%. That was a longitudinal study where they took kids from 19 or between 1999 and 2016. Um, and they compared children who, well, I'll just read it logistic regression. They measured the association between your first milk consumed after formula or breast milk. So they compared whole 2%, 1% and fat free, and then weight status, BMI percentage. Um, let's see. And then overweight, it's basically where you are on your, your, um, body graphs charting. And then, um, they assess the association between current milk type, milk type, and then weight status among two to 20 years of age, because again, it was a 17 year study. Yeah. Is there, I mean, that, you know, of, is there any studies that, um, look at any potential like correlation between, um, wealth and income status and, um, type of milk consumed? Oh, I have not specifically looked at anything as far as that, but there certainly, certainly is. So if you think of, you know, financial disposition or where people are at financially, um, we know that milk is one of the lowest donated or the least donated items at food shelves. So if you don't have the money to afford it, you're going to take whatever you can get, whether that's skim whole 1%, 2%, maybe you don't even get to have milk. So, you know, financial resources, food deserts, uh, all sorts of different things really, truly play into that too. So I'll have to look that up because now that I'm super curious about that. What is a food desert for people who don't know? Yeah. So a food desert, um, let's see if I can pull up the actual mileage, but it is a town, a city, or like a community that doesn't have um, access to affordable or nutritious food within a specific amount of miles of their home. So it could be that they, they do have a food shelf, but maybe the food shelf has more processed items. Um, some people call them food pantries. So we just call them food shelves up here in Minnesota, but, um, yeah, it's basically the, the lack of resources to actual healthy, nutritious products. It is absolutely like mind blowing to me that we live where I can, uh, talk to any person at any time from a completely Mm -hmm. mobile device, but that there are still communities that exist where people actively live full time where there's not like a grocery store. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. But I mean, even here in my current town that I live in, we have a food shelf that is for our entire County and it's placed into probably the most, um, Maybe poverty ridden isn't necessarily the correct term, but probably the, the lowest income level town. And we're still from any town except for two driving one to two towns over, which could be about 20 minutes to a grocery store. And I technically wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily refer to us as super rural. We're rural in the sense that we're 60 minutes from the twin cities, which is like, you know, our capital here in the state of Minnesota, but we have access. We have you know, dollar generals, we have, um, the co-op, we have, um, grocery stores and things like that, but we don't necessarily have grocery stores in every town. Right. Well, I mean, like if you, I know I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about, um, it was specifically talking about, uh, Louisiana after hurricane Katrina. And there was, um, obviously lots of very low income, small rural communities hit. Right. And, Mm -hmm 
there's like nothing there even now like in 2021 there's they haven't been able to rebuild so there's whole communities where like you have to drive like two hours to even get to like a grocery store it's just insane it's so crazy it is um so milk alternatives Mm -hmm. um so when we're talking about milk alternatives just so we're clear we're talking about like soy milk almond milk oat milk anything Mm -hmm. that's not from a cow dairy yes yes exactly um so you before um did a really great job of like explaining the nutrition like the nutritional values like or differences between the two yeah so if you're so let's say you're somebody who really truly can't let's say you actually have a a real lactose intolerance um first and foremost, I would recommend an ultra pasteurized version of dairy milk. So Fairlife, the brand is an incredible, um, product. So it's a two milk that you can get that doesn't actually have lactose, but it's still dairy. Um, it actually has a higher protein content. It's got a lower carbohydrate content because lactose is a sugar. Um, people who are lactose intolerant, those people actually have a sugar sensitivity or sugar intolerance. But when they ultra pasteurize a product, they go in there and they do a series of, um, basically chemical, not chemical. They do a series of mechanical processes, I guess I would say. And they put an enzyme into the milk that will dissolve the sugar. So it makes it, um, uh, able to be consumed by those of us who struggle with lactose intolerance. Um, now if that's something that you don't prefer to do, or you can't do anyways, maybe you, a, you can't afford it because it's a little bit spendier and it's typically higher cost for a half a gallon of, um, fair life milk in comparison to just regular fluid dairy milk. But let's say that for some reason you can't do it and that's fine. Soy milk is going to be the best option next. So nutritionally it's almost even with actual dairy milk. But if you look at the ingredient labels of these products, my biggest thing when we're talking about them in comparison is look at the ingredient list. So if you look at the ingredient list of an almond of almond milk, there's going to be several different products that are in the milk. If you look at the ingredient list of dairy milk, you're going to see vitamin A, vitamin D and milk. So vitamin A and vitamin D are added to dairy milk to fortify it because we are seeing so much vitamin A and vitamin D deficiency in the United States. So you'll also find vitamin D fortification in things like our cereals. Um, It's of course added to yogurt and, you know, different products like that. But my biggest recommendation as a dietitian is just take a peek at the ingredient list because, you know, those are a little bit more easy to understand than the nutrition labels because it's tough to read a nutrition label if you don't truly understand it. Yeah, I have for a long time because I have several friends who are um, involved with nutrition, um, specifically like in regard to fitness. And um, a lot of them talk about like, if you can like the more raw foods you're eating typically the healthier it is so that means more fruits more vegetables more meats where like that's all that's all that's in it is so like if you're gonna if you need something like with sugar in it like maybe have a handful of blueberries instead of a handful of chocolate chips or like something like that so like the more raw a food is the healthier it is is that generally true 
I mean, yes, but then you also have to say, what is your definition of healthy? You know, um, there's a lot of practitioners, specifically dietitians, who will take a health at every size approach. So that's saying that people who are 600 pounds may still live a healthy lifestyle. Um, I'm indifferent about that. I believe that you truly can be healthy at every size. However, you know, uh, severe obesity, morbid obesity, you, you can't say that that's healthier than somebody who's in a a safe and appropriate body weight and lives a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, that's a, that's a point. But again, if you're thinking of what our ancestors did, you know, again, it was virtually the raw food diet, fruits, vegetables, nuts, carbohydrates that are, well, realistically, those had to be cooked and processed, but, um, that meats. So I would, I would genuinely, gen generally agree. Yeah. When I say like raw foods, I don't mean like uncooked. I mean like stuff, yeah. stuff that's like, cause I'm not, listen, I'm not eating raw meat. I'm not doing it. <laughs> okay. Good, um. good job, Harley. <laughs> but, um, I mean like stuff that is just the raw food itself. Yeah. Hopefully the, yes, exactly. Hopefully anyone listening understands what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I totally, I totally did, but just took it the wrong way. <laughs> um, so if someone doesn't love milk for mm-hmm. whatever reason, um, what are some other ways they can still like uh, consume dairy or they can be like supportive of the dairy industry? Yeah, I love this question. Um, you know, you don't have to consume dairy milk to support the dairy industry. I think that supporting the dairy industry can also look like mitigating those negative comments that are out there in social media or in the media in general. It can look like sharing your local farmer's post. It can look like sharing information about dairy. Um, it can just look like asking questions to these farmers too. You know, we we kind of struggle with, um, and by we, I mean dairy farmers, and I'm certainly not a dairy farmer, but um, I think dairy farmers have trouble because we want people to ask questions. We genuinely want you to understand what we're doing on a farm, how they're milking cows, what you're feeding cows to produce this, you know, that they're, that your milk is safe and it doesn't have hormones in it. It doesn't have antibiotics in it, you know, all these things. So asking questions, visiting the farm, maybe even getting a summer job on a farm. If you're somebody in high school or, you know, somebody who just thought that would be fun, that there's several ways that you can support the dairy industry. Um, if you're somebody who can't drink actual fluid milk products, like cheese, um, yogurt, again, yogurt is one of, I, in my eyes, yogurt is one of the most beneficial products nutrition wise that we can have because it's so great for our gut. It's a great source of protein. Um, you know, it's so portable, just so many other benefits. You can cook with it. You can have yogurt parfaits. You can have it plain. I make ranch dressing with it. So, you know, I would say do your best to consume other products if that's what you choose to do. You've all seen the Jamie Lee Curtis commercials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Heck yeah. Um, okay. I don't love ranch dressing. Sorry. That just like you, you said you make ranch dressing. With, I don't love ranch dressing. I don't like, I, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm like indifferent. I can put ranch dressing on pizza, but I definitely don't eat it like in my salad. Okay. I do. I will not eat it in salad. I don't like it. I will use it as a dipping sauce for like garlic knots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if my wings are like a little too spicy, I'll like 
yep dab a little wing in there but like aside besides that I don't like ranch yeah so like my secret with that is you get a cup of plain Greek yogurt so there's no flavoring in it and then you get a dry ranch packet like a dry ranch seasoning packet and then you just mix them together until you get like the flavor intensity of the ranch that you're looking for and it's so good and it's really high in protein so if you're somebody who's like I can't eat carrots without having ranch and you can eat you know a cup of ranch dressing and also get like 11 grams of protein in it okay I will take it I'm Mm -hmm. not a huge fan of Greek yogurt either but I use um, a lot of I use it in my smoothies because I don't like the taste of it but that Mm -hmm. strawberries mask the taste of the Greek yogurt (laughs) yes exactly um okay so I do have a couple of specific um like dairy industry questions yeah um what what is pasteurization like what does that mean (sighs) yeah pasteurization is heating the milk up to a certain temperature for a certain set amount of time to um get rid of any bacteria that could potentially be in the milk so again milk is a raw product initially of course and it's stored in the bulk tanks on the farm and it's cooled. So it has to be brought down. I wish I could remember the exact temperature numbers, but it comes out of the cow at X amount of degrees it's transported. And then it has to be cooled down in the bulk tank to X amount of degrees in X amount of time. So it prevents any bacterial growth, um, basically any negative, uh, any micro microbe microbe. That's what I'm looking for microbe to be growing in them. Okay. I've heard from a several sources like i mean there are sources on instagram but i follow a lot of producers on instagram um yeah that non-pasteurized milk is actually a lot healthier than pasteurized milk yeah you know i'm i'm kind of indifferent about this one so i i myself have not looked at the differences um nutritionally But if you're not somebody who grew up drinking raw milk, I think it makes it really challenging for your gut to be able to tolerate them. Um, So I definitely don't think I would be somebody who would recommend going out and drinking raw milk unless you yourself understand that you're, you know, risking the potential to have, you know, some negative outcomes from doing that. Like long-term negative outcomes or just like, I'm going to puke it up, negative outcomes. Just like you might get diarrhea. Oh, so... What is something that you wish everyone knew about dairy, like dairy producers? I know like you yourself are not a producer, but you're marrying into a producer family um, and you have family that's producers. So what's something you wish that everyone knew? Yes, I can say a million things. Go for it. I think I wish that everybody knew how hard these men and women worked. Um, You know, a lot of times, on the opposite side, um, if you're somebody who maybe doesn't love agriculture, you say things, or you may hear things like, um, you know, we abuse our animals or, you know, we're just in it for the money. Now, anybody who's involved in agriculture knows that, you know, (laughs) this, we've paid for dinners that we haven't eaten at restaurants. We have left weddings. We have left vacations. We have gone out to the calving pen and our heifer shed at two in the morning to make sure favorite cows calve safely. Um, I've seen my farmer cry over cows dying. So, you know, there's so much love, not necessarily like your dog per se, but 
these men and women are with their cattle every single day. So the amount of money that they spend on them certainly, and the amount of money that they receive certainly can't ever adequate, be adequate enough basically to how much they genuinely love these animals. Now, the next thing, and probably my only, my second point, um, is just, I think that fear mongering is so prevalent in our food, unfortunately, by influencers or by people who disagree with animal agriculture again. And the new common comment is that, you know, and it's not, I guess, new is that there's antibiotics and hormones in your milk. So I do my best to document it every once in a while, what it looks like when we treat a cow, how we mark it, um, how we milk it into a separate, like individual, um, milking bin. Basically I document how we dump it down the drain after that. And then how we actually test the milk to make sure that there's no antibiotics in it. So we have this really cool, tiny little machine that will sample milk from that cow, like directly from that cow. We put it on a sample stick. We put it into this little tester and it will tell us if that animal animal is antibiotic free or not. And then, you know, of course, if it's not, then the milk gets dumped and we go another 24 hours and we test it again, but they all have a withdrawal period. You know, if you had pneumonia, you would, you, you yourself would treat yourself with antibiotics. So as a conventional dairy producer, we also have the luxury of being able to treat our animals when things like that come up, but you in your lifetime will never ever encounter antibiotics in your milk. And if you do, um, well, first off you physically can't, but let's say that, you know, our milk truck came to the farm and picked our bulk tank up. The milk truck tests the bulk tank with all of our cow's milk in it for antibiotics. If that tests positive for antibiotics, we're fined. If that makes it onto the truck and they test positive for antibiotics again, once it gets to the creamery, the whole entire milk truck is dumped. The farmer that had the antibiotic milk is then fined and then has to pay again for that entire truck's worth of milk. So it's not something realistically that's a affordable to do. And it's not something that again, you will ever encounter. Yeah. So this exact thing specifically with the antibiotics and, um, I think a little bit hormones is also something that we talked about came, came up, um, when I had my conversation with Ethan, Mm -hmm. he said almost the exact like word for word, same thing that you said is like, if somehow there's an issue with, um, antibiotics, making it past like the initial test, then once it gets to the facility, um, everything that came in on that truck has to get canned and the farmer basically has to pay to replace all of that product. Yeah. It's, you know, it's fine after fine after fine. And in an industry where every penny counts, it's not something that the farmer can take on. And then on top of it, you know, it's not, I think a big, huge perception that people have is like every day we have cows getting antibiotics or all the cows are getting antibiotics. And that's, that's not it. You know, antibiotics are still expensive. We're still paying for them. And then on top of that, we're paying to virtually dump milk down the drain. So your cow, your cow is only getting antibiotics if it is sick. It's not a preventatory measure. Yeah. I mean, the same way typically humans wouldn't get antibiotics until they were sick. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything else you really wish people understood that you want to share real quick? Oh gosh. I just feel like there could be so many different things. I I think the biggest thing that I just want to reiterate is I wish people go to a farm. 
I think that, you know, the statistic right now is that most people are three generations removed from the farm. So we have lost touch with, um, you know, kind of what it looks like, what these men and women are going through, how our food is produced and things like that. So my favorite quote is a Willie Nelson quote, and it says, take your kids to the farm so they don't think food comes from a box. And, you know, I'm a dietitian, so I've always had a passion for food, whether, you know, it had been a poor relationship with a food passion or me being a dietitian now, but growing up, we, my dad was an immaculate cook. My grandma taught all of his brothers and sisters how to cook phenomenally. And I never once, not one time thought about where my food was coming from. It just showed up on my plate and I ate it. Yeah. I know that for me, I, my parents tried to make sure that I knew where stuff was coming from. Um, but when you aren't actively living on a farm or on a ranch, sometimes it can be hard to like explain those realities to kids without it being scary. Right. And then, you know, I think another thing too is, um, I, (laughs) I, I grew up like coddled probably isn't the right word because my parents were always very tough on me, but I, my parents gave me a lot of things and, you know, kind of always set me up to be successful. And then as I grew older and I met Dylan on the farm, I learned, you know, how to work hard and I wanted to work harder for myself and, you know, all of these different things. And I began to kind of document what it looked like on the farm. And to my friends, they were like, oh my gosh, Kennedy's on a farm. Well, then my friends kind of got to start learning about the farm too. And I love Instagram. I think it's such an incredible tour tool and we get to depict and teach consumers kind of everything that we would like to share. But then at the same time, I have a lot of people who say, wow, you, you make farming look so glamorous. And I'm like, wow, that's a great compliment. But I certainly don't want you to think that, you know, like every day we wake up and we're in this world where we're like, oh my gosh, it's so great. And we love it. And da, 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 da. there's blood, there's sweat, there's tears, there's accidents. There's the constant anxiety of having to survive into another legacy. And, you know, the constant pressures of living and surviving and getting to expand and competition and all of these things. So, you know, agriculture is really romanticized. And I think when we learn too that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a romantic occupation. Um, it'll be really interesting to see the perception of how, um, consumers kind of change their thoughts on how their food is produced. Yeah. I know that I'm recording an upcoming, um, episode specifically talking about the romantic romanticization <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but I romanticizing I mean, probably. Yes, one of those. Whatever. <laughs> um, of ranching and of farming because recently in and in this is a really good thing I think for ranching and farming that in you know mainstream media and a lot of like conventional magazines are talking about like look at their little homestead farm or whatever and they're talking yeah. about these things, but that also opens up this other thing where people could potentially be doing a lot of harm to animals, to themselves, to Mm -hmm. everything by going in, not having any idea how much hard work it actually is. And then you've got animals that aren't being taken care of correctly. People that are emotionally and mentally not feeling like they're being taken care of correctly. Like they Mm -hmm. can't get it right when it's supposed to be easy. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. That's such a phenomenal, phenomenal point. I love Thermal and Oaks on Instagram. Do you know who that is? 
I don't, but I'm going to, well, I probably follow them, but I'll go look. Thermaland. Oh, I'm sure you are. Thermaland.oaks. So it's like thermal and period oaks. But she, oh my gosh, she's an immaculate homesteader. They have built their house from the ground up. Like they built it themselves. They have the most adorable daughter. She's pregnant again. They have a million donkeys. And I'm like, oh my God, Dylan, we have to have donkeys. (laughs) And I love them. And Dylan's like, Kennedy, we have cows. We are, we're not horse people. Like we don't have horses. So, I mean, you know, you take care of a donkey, like a horse. Yeah. And I'm like, but I don't care. I don't think they're so cute. I want them. And he's like, absolutely not. That would be so irresponsible. We don't know how to take care of donkeys. So, you know, I fell, I fell for the social media romanticization of farming too. So yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It is. I like on one hand, it's like really good because all these people who are like, maybe not exposed to it are seeing, you know, their favorite celebrity. Oh, they have their own farm, but they're not seeing all of the shit that's on the floor or, you know, the tears over the animal that died in the middle of the night or whatever it is that, right. that part, and that part's really hard to share on social media, but it still exists. Right. And, you know, we, we constantly in agriculture and, and I think the dairy or the beef producers feel this way also. So I won't speak for them, but us specifically on the farm, we feel so much pressure to only share the good because there's so much pressure against us. We don't want to share the negative sides. I have this really great picture that I love of Dylan. We came home from a dinner early because we had a down cow who was so sick and he loved her and he's pumping fluids. I want to say electrolytes. No, no, not electrolytes. He's just doing fluid, like an IV on her. And he's in the pouring rain, sitting on the front of the truck, holding this IV up into his favorite cow. And I'm like, that is an accurate depiction of what this means to be in agriculture. Yeah. And, but without all of the knowledge that comes with that picture, it might paint, it might paint a very different picture. Right. And that's why Dylan was like, you can't ever post that. I'm like, I love it so much though. Like it's, it shows your passion for being a farmer, but again, you know, we have to, now we don't have to, but it's better to share the good stuff than to, you know, show the negative or the scary stuff on, on the side of the agriculture world. Yes. What is the number one thing you tell someone if they're like, Hey, I want to be a dietitian and also like, make sure that I'm promoting agriculture, like while doing that. I love it. You know, dietetics is such an incredible career because you can do anything you want. You can work in sports, you can work in agriculture, you can work in obstetrics, you can work with old people, you know, anything you genuinely want to do, you can do. So in here, here in the state of Minnesota, there's like, if you wanted to be in the dairy industry, there's probably two to maybe four, if you were lucky jobs for dietitians. And the two that I can think of off the top of my head have been there for decades. They love their job. They probably should retire soon, but I know they never will because they're so passionate about it. So I knew that I wasn't necessarily going to have the opportunity to, you know, take their job essentially. So I, decided to take my own or to create my own. So I flipped over from the dugout dietitian over to the legendary dietitian. And now I'm super lucky because I get to show every day what kind of what we do on our farm and then also help men and women in agriculture. So if you truly are interested in being a dietitian, I would say, go for it. Never, ever let anybody stop you from doing it. No matter how hard they tell you it is, no matter how scary they tell you it is, you know, you have to do 1200 hours of unsupervised practice. 
and it's you pay for it, but you don't get paid to work. So I think that's the scariest thing. But if you can get over that, you can do it. You can do it really well and you can be really successful and also love what you do. Dietitians don't make <laughs> anywhere near like good, high quality money, but there's an opportunity to, if you chase your passions and you wake up every day and you love what you're doing. So certainly, you know, don't, don't pick your career based off money and then go hard for anything that you want, whether it's actually being a dietitian, agriculture, any dream you want to chase. Don't ever let anybody tell you no. I love it. Oh, um, so earlier, like a few minutes ago, you mentioned that something that would be really great for people to do, like to either be supportive or to learn mm -hmm. was to go to a farm mm -hmm. and you just like call up a farm and say, Hey, I want to come learn stuff. Yeah, I would, you know, of course be respectful, but I would, you know, if you found a farm, like I think, so Dylan's dad is the head of our farm. So if you called over to the number listed on Google or whatever for ours and said, Hey, I'm really interested in learning more about agriculture. Is there, do you do any farm tours? Is there any possibility that I could come see the farm for a day? And then you give them reasoning why, you know, some farmers, especially the older generations might be kind of sketched out about that and think that you've got ill intentions by doing it. But if you say, you know, I just want to learn, I don't know anything about farming. I want to understand where my food comes from. I'll help, you know, offer to feed calves or, you know, do the hard stuff or, you know, not the hard stuff, but do something. I think they'll really appreciate it. Especially these old guys who are still in the game. They love to have any kind of conversation about farming they can. And it's just another way for these farmers to tell their history and leave their legacy to one more person. All right, folks, you heard it here first call Kennedy's future father-in-law and say, I would love to help you clean up cow shit. If you talk to me about cows, <laughs> please. And then say Kennedy and Harley told me to tell you that. Yeah. Like I listened to Kenny's episode of this podcast and she said you would love some help shuffling cow shit. Oh my God. I, I can't wait till you post this. I'm going to screen record it and send it to him. No, but, um, I think that is something that would be oh. really helpful. Um, cause I know like here I've called plenty of Calibrates and said, Hey, do you guys do tours? I would love to know more about what you do. And a couple have been like, sure, here's the time and day you can come. Right. And and some, you know, sometimes so, they get defensive about it because we live in a world where people have ill intentions, unfortunately. So yeah, just as long as you be respectful and give as many details as you can about it, I think you'll hardly hear a no. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, what are you of everything you've done in your whole entire life? What are you the most proud of? Yep. I'm going to copy this straight from what I said last time. Um, Perfect. I think that what I'm most proud of is I truly have never been afraid to hear a no. So my professors in undergrad told me, you know, you have to be a, a clinical dietitian. You have to work in a hospital and you have to do clinical dietetics. And I was like, I don't love that. I don't think that's fun. I want to see clients who want to see me. I want to, you know, make my own schedule and I want to basically have fun with what I'm doing. You know, if you're passionate about clinical dietetics and you're a clinical dietitian, I'm so happy for you because truly it takes a really special person. But my professors told me I had to, and I said, no, I don't. And I never did it. And <laughs> I am 24 years old. I get to work for myself. I get to work from home. I can help Dylan on the farm when I want to, I can be home with our dogs and I am so proud of myself for never being afraid to hear no. And, you know, sometimes people tell you, you have to do things and just having the guts to say, 
I don't want to do it. So, you know, I don't have to, it doesn't bring me joy. Yeah. Um, and I think I did also say this last time, that's a incredible thing to know at 24 or at 23 or at 22 or however old you were when you made that decision Mm -hmm. that you're like, that's not something that's going to bring me joy. It's not going to make me happy. And I don't see a different spot. So I'm going to make a different spot. Right. And you know, it's that, it's that guts, you know, you have to be in today's day and age. We have so many opportunities. If you can't duke it out and beat someone else out of an opportunity, make your own, you know, there's always a way. Yeah. Especially with the technology that we have at our fingertips. I was saying earlier, you know, I can access just about anything from the palm of my hand at any point in time. There's no reason why you can't create your own niche and be able to succeed that way. Exactly. It's so awesome. Alrighty. Well, um, very final thing. Where can people follow along with you on social media? Yeah, I'm most present on Instagram. So you can find me on Instagram at the dot legendary, but then dairy is spelled D-A-I-R-Y dot dietitian and dietitian is spelled with two T's. So diet, I-T-I-A-N. Perfect. All right. Um, Thank you so much, (laughs) Kennedy, for joining me again. (laughs) Heck yeah. I'd do it a million times if I had to, Harley. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.